0: Well, good morning. morning. Guys doing all right? Good to see all your bright, smiley, shining faces this morning. We are uh, in the middle of a series based upon our friend, Brant Hansen's newly released book, Life is Hard, God is Good, So Let's Dance, Experiencing Real Joy in a World Gone Mad. If you've missed any of the previous messages, you can go back and check them out at hammockstreetchurch.com. Just click on the resources tab and you can find our YouTube channel there or you can go directly to YouTube and type in Church, and you'll find us there as well. This week we are picking up with chapter 11. You can still buy the book uh, if you like even though we're going to be um, done with it here. Um, You still might want to read it for yourself. I'm having trouble with the slide so help me out with that, Cam, please. Did you know... Well, you know what? Let me do this. Let me pray first, and then we'll get started. God, thank you so much for gathering us together here today. Thank you for this time of community, this time of ecclesia, this time of celebration, as we sing praises to you, as we enjoy being among the body of Christ, as we get to know your word a little better and get to understand it better uh, through what Brandt has given us. God, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 11. He's calling this party practice because God himself is joyful. God himself is a God of joy. Did you know this? Did you know that Jesus himself described heaven as a party place? Did you know that? Did you know that? Take a look at Luke chapter 15, verse 7. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous person who... It says, do not need to repent. I want you to understand what that means. It means who don't think they need to repent. Okay, there's a difference. That's, that's what that is. It's, it's a way of describing self-righteousness. So here's what that means. Brandt opened this chapter by suggesting that we Jesus followers need to learn how to party properly. Because I don't know about you guys, but sometimes for me, Having fun at a party does not come easily. Before I was a Jesus follower, I was always more anxious at a party than I was joyful. Whenever I had to go to some kind of party, some kind of gathering, some kind of event, I would always worry about, oh my gosh, who's gonna be there? Oh no, who's gonna be there? Am I wearing the right clothes? Are my clothes cool enough? They never have been, I want you to know. Will everybody like me? Will people laugh at my jokes? You guys are really good about that, thank you. Will I make a fool of myself if I'm doing a good job? Yes. What if there are drugs at the party? I remember being a kid going, no, no, what if there are drugs there? What if there's too much alcohol? What if somebody starts a fight? These are the things that were going through my mind as a kid when we go to these parties. And to be honest, I usually preferred to avoid the whole scene altogether and stay home. But as Brand pointed out in this chapter, Jesus said that we need to be more like children. We need to be more childlike if we want to avail ourselves of the joy of the kingdom of heaven. Directly from Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. And this is the important part, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now, why did he say that? Well, here's why. Unlike adults, children aren't always worried about the superficial stuff. They're not always worried about how they look or what clothes they're wearing or, or what people think of them or whether they're successful enough, whether they've you know, gotten their colors down or they can say the alphabet quickly or they can choose their animals. They're not worried about being successful enough at those things. They're just looking to have fun. They're just looking to experience joy, and in addition to that, children are naturally humble. They don't have to try and be cool. And when you think about it, kids are not in any way cool. They're not. In fact, they need somebody to do just about everything for them. I and mean, when they're really little, you do everything, literally everything. You feed them. You change them, you wash them, you clothe them, all that stuff. And even when they get a little bit older, they need people to drive them around. They need people to dress them. They cannot be trusted to dress themselves, can they? When my younger son, Quinn, was a child, somewhere along the way, he picked up a fur cap. I think he got it from his grandfather up in Canada. So it was this fur-lined cap with fur ears and fur everywhere. We... We're up there during a Christmas time, so he got the hat and my father-in-law let him keep it. Can I tell you he wore it until the following Christmas? Have you ever had to deal with a child wearing a fur hat in August in Florida? He was just a ball of sweat. Kids can't even be trusted to pick out their own clothes. But kids know that, and they accept that. They know that they're dependent upon others. And not only that, unlike other members of our society who have people doing all their things for them, like famous people or the really wealthy people, kids aren't always looking for the next rush, the next thing, the next new and novel experience. In fact, to a kid, just the opposite is true kids are absolutely thrilled to keep on doing the exact same thing that they've always done over and over and over and over and over. English theologian, Christian apologist, G.K. Chesterton noted this. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. Kids always say, do it again. And the grown up person does it again and again and again until he's nearly dead, Chesterton said. For grown up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. Perhaps, is it perhaps that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon? It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike, it may be God. Is, is making every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them the same. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. That's a good summary, isn't it? And as Brand notes, it's interesting to think about how people view God. Now, it's interesting, and there are theological discussions about this. Is it proper to think about what God looks like? Proper to think about how to view God? But I have spoken with so many people in the decades that I've been working with people in ministry. I've spoken to so many people who see God as this big, old, stern, senior citizen in the sky, And then they go, what's God like? And then God gets described by words that most people neither know nor understand. Words like, oh, he's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. But almost no one ever describes God as a God who really knows how to celebrate. But in reality, God, he wrote the book. God is the author of joy. God created the world for his pleasure. When God was creating the world and its inhabitants, he pronounced his creation, the light, the earth, the waters, and the animals, as all as good. He said they were all good. But when he made us people, his image bearers, he pronounced us to be very good. So as Brand points out, the world began in joy and delight, and it will end with a huge party. We go to the book of the Revelation in Revelation 19.9. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. A wedding supper in that culture was the biggest party there was. It lasted a week. It was a a rollicking good time. So it seems that God is not the big old angry sheriff in the sky who would punish us for all the dumb things we do to ruin his work on earth. Rather, God knows us. And he knows how everything is going to work out here on earth. And he's not worried one little bit. Now, as Brandt points out, not everyone will be invited into the kingdom of heaven. Many people will just choose to be left off the guest list. And that makes sense because many people choose to ignore the blessings that God promises those who follow him. Now, we know that one can gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven by understanding who we are and whose we are. Who we are, we have born into this world, we come into the world's... Broken. We come into the world separated from God. We come into the world with a sin nature. Remember what sin means. Sin means there's a standard of perfection and you missed it. It's an archery term. There's a bullseye and you missed it. Sin is there's a standard of perfection that God gives us, that God wishes for us to all attain so our life would be ultimate and and abundant as He gave us this life but we miss the standard. We all miss it. We all fall short of the glory of God. But if you recognize that about yourself, but you also recognize you belong to a God who loves you. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And whoever believes in him will not perish, will live forever, will have eternal life. So when we understand that we are born of a God who loves us, we say, God, please forgive my sin. Please Look the other way. Please forgive the fact that I go against you time and time and time again. God, I know that you love me so much. You gave me your savior. You gave me your son, Jesus. He lived and died on my behalf so I can live not worried anymore. I can live free. I can live joyful when I turn from my sin and make God through Jesus my Lord and savior. Many people are gonna ignore that. Many people are not gonna listen. But when other people don't listen, well, there's still room for more, we go to Luke chapter 14, verse 13. But when you give a banquet, Jesus said, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. God is looking for for people with the right attitude to come to this party. God is looking for humble people at this party. God is looking for people with a childlike faith. But it's sad. For some reason, when we grow up, we lose that. We grow rigid. We forget about living with joy. If you've ever been able to stick around here after a Sunday service, you've seen one of the visions that I had about our church come alive when we had the opportunity to design a new church building that would suit our unique fellowship, our unique ecclesia, one of the things I always wanted was I wanted to have a place where the children of the community just love to be. That's the way my kids were raised in the church. My kids love to come to the church. They love to be in the church. They they just love the church. And that's why we built our building this way. That's why our building is so sturdy and functional. That's why it's set up. Susan, who did a wonderful job designing the inside of this place, made it so that it can take a beating. Everything here was designed and planned and built to accommodate the behavior of joyful children. After church, every Sunday, you know what you'll see? Much to my mother's chagrin, if you're watching, Mom, High, You'll see young kids running around, laughing and playing and squealing and screaming. It's pure joy. They're enjoying their friends. And they're enjoying knowing that they're in a place where God's love is present and God's love is obvious. Now, to us, that's a foretaste of the joy God's called us to. See, we adults don't always get that. As we mature we tend to get pretty sedate. And quite frankly, we tend to get pretty boring sometimes. Brandt quoted the way that Rabbi Edward Cohen described that phenomenon. He said this, Life is tough. It takes up a lot of your time, all of your weekends. And what do you get in the end of it? Then the rabbi said this, which it was weird when I read it, but I thought, that's not too bad, so I thought I'll share it with you. He said, I think that the life cycle is all backwards. You should die first. Get that out of the way. Then, you live 20 years in an old age home. Then you get kicked out when you're too young to be there. And you get a gold watch, and then you go to work. Your watch will help you keep time, right? And then you work for 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. Then you go to college, and you party until you're ready to go to high school. Then you go to high school, grade school. Then you become a little kid, and you play. You have no responsibilities. Then you become a little baby. You go back into the womb, you spend your last few months months floating, and you finish up as a gleam in somebody's eye. (laughs) Doesn't that sound better? (laughs) About this, the late theologian and and Pastor Mike Iaconelli commented this. It's hard to imagine we were a gleam in somebody's eye once. What happened to the gleam in our eye? What happened to that joyful, crazy, spontaneous, spontaneous, fun-loving spirit we once had? The childlikeness in all of us gets snuffed out over the years. So unfortunately, we end up doing what God doesn't want us to do, the opposite of what God wants us to do. As followers of Jesus, we are not called to reflect our love of Jesus by being pretend, pious, and outwardly somber. We're called to be happily spontaneous and live in ways that show an unpredictable love of life. We're not called just to live godly lives. We're called to live lives of joy in the Lord. As C.S. Lewis put it, joy is the serious business of heaven. All right, chapter 12, we move on. The style of God on the joy of radical hospitality where outsiders are insiders. Our God is a God of radical hospitality. Now, Brandt used the definition of hospitality as making outsiders feel like insiders. And in the Bible, God repeatedly calls for his people to be distinct, to be separated from the rest of the culture by welcoming the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. This is something that sets us as Jesus followers apart from the world. Our God is a God of hospitality. That is who God is. And that is how God operates. That's God's style, if you will. As King David wrote in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And in the same way, when we observe the way that God is, we can see his hospitality shining through. Now, another aspect of God's style is that he uses the humble God has a habit of using seemingly unimpressive, overlooked things to do marvelous things. God loves it when we treat outsiders like insiders. And I think that's one of the great things we do in our ecclesia here at Hammock Street. That's what we do the best. I'll tell you, over the years, people have come in to check us out and many have made us their church home, their church community. And even the ones who didn't return, because they wanted something more traditional, or as I like to say, churchy, they still went out of their way to tell me how kind and welcoming our people were. And that always makes me swell with pride. We followers of Jesus should be known by our hospitality. The late Eugene Peterson, the guy who put together, the pastor who put together the Message Bible, noted that the word Christian means different things to different people. To one person, it means the stiff, uptight, inflexible way of life, colorless and unbending, stuck in the past. And to another, it means a risky, surprise filled adventure, lived tiptoe at the edge of expectation. Now, the biblical definition is the latter, not the former. God loves when we get this right. That is God's style. Moving on to chapter 13, on the gentle art of freaking people out. We're supposed to be so hopeful that people wonder what's up. Now, in this chapter, Brandt started with a question. He said, based on whatever knowledge you have of Jesus, if you could choose only one word to describe him, what word would you choose? The theologian Dallas Willard chose the word Relaxed. Now, quite candidly, that's not the word I would have chosen, but it does make sense. Jesus doesn't really seem anxious, does he? You've never read anything in the scripture that showed Jesus being anxious. He's not hurried. He's not out of control. He's always in the moment. He's not stressing about getting everything done. Come on, fellas, let's go. We got some walking to do. Enough already with your hair, Matthew. It looks fine. Let's go. No. Jesus wasn't stressing that. Jesus wasn't bothered by storms. In fact, Jesus Jesus took a storm as a time to take a nap. Remember in Mark chapter four, verse 35, that day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Verse 36, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There was also other boats with him. Verse 37, and a furious squall, a furious storm came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. And where was Jesus? Jesus is in the back sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? (laughs) Jesus said, listen, if we believe the things that Jesus believes, we'd be relaxed too. If we knew the things that Jesus knew, we'd be relaxed too. And if we're relaxed when there's a storm raging around us, people are going to notice that. People are going to pay attention. In fact, in our high stress, high tension society, if we are perennially relaxed, people are going to freak out. What's up with that guy? They won't know what to do with it, but they'll certainly be drawn to it. In a world of insecurity, Being secure draws people in. A secure person whose mind isn't cluttered with worry and hurry has the time and the attention to listen intently to others. Though the world doesn't need more people talking, it certainly does need more people who listen. And if you can focus your attention on someone else and ask genuinely curious questions, people are going to wonder what's right with you then Brant looked at another one of my favorite scripture passages and he pointed out how some use it for the absolute wrong purpose. 1 Peter 3, 15. Peter said, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have. Now, if you stop there you could use this verse to justify something that that a bunch of Christians really like to justify. Standing in front of a crowd or confronting strangers on a street or getting up in the grill of a a wayward family friend or a relative and screaming to them, screaming at them about your faith in Jesus. I mean, that's what a lot of people do. I'll tell you why I'm so happy, because of Jesus. But Peter didn't end with that, probably because he anticipated how people would misapply it. So instead of stopping there, Peter added, but wait a minute, do this with gentleness and respect. Peter expected us to be so hopeful that in the midst of anything and everything, we could stay hopeful and not be griping and lamenting about how our world is a mess and the world's going to hell on a handbasket. That's not what Jesus wants for us and from us. And even though it's somewhat accurate, the people to whom Jesus or Peter was writing, they were going through a worse time than we are, far, far worse. I mean, sure, sometimes we might have it not so comfortable. They were getting killed. They were being violently persecuted for their faith. We're being teased. So Peter was saying to them, yes, people aren't gonna like you. Yes, people are gonna try and harm you, but don't be afraid. And when they say to you, why are you not afraid? Why are you so hopeful? Then be ready to tell them about Jesus, but do so gently. As Brandt puts it, hope radiates. And in a culture nearly devoid of hope, radiating hope is incredibly powerful. Do you know this? Studies have shown that three out of five teenage girls in the United States feel sad or hopeless. Three out of five, the majority of teenage girls in the United States feel sad or hopeless. That is heartbreaking. And that's why we call what we tend to do on social media "doom scrolling." You know, when you're going through, going, oh, this is going to depress me. Mm-hmm. Let's use val- vacation in the Maldives today. We don't call it hope scrolling. Oh, I hope this cheers me up. If you follow the news now, you don't expect to hear anything good. There's a local publication that's called Good News. We go, well, what's that? I don't know. You expect hear only bad things, and that's what you get, bad things, because bad things bring you back. But as Brand points out, we're in a unique position to bring hope to our world. I like to tell people all the time, it is so much fun to live as a follower of Jesus here in our area, because it's easy to stand out, because being kind in our area is countercultural. We can be such rebels by being the nicest people around, by being the kindest people around, by being the most loving people around. But hope isn't the only thing about Christianity that's countercultural. Our love is countercultural too. Recall that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told us to love our enemies and to forgive others. He told us to live without fear, to not worry about anything. He told us to not live with anger. He told us to go the extra mile for other people. So how are we doing with all of that? I'm gonna suggest we have our moments, but overall not as well as we could be. But what if we were better at it? Brandon asked, wouldn't that be an awesome way to live? Brandon Manning, again, he said this, if if indeed we Christ followers lived a life in imitation of Jesus, our witness would be irresistible. If we took nothing but a compassionate attitude toward the world, if we were a counterculture, to our nation's lunatic lust for pride of place, power, and possessions. If we preferred to be faithful rather than successful, the walls of indifference to Jesus Christ would crumble. Christians filled with authenticity, commitment, and the generosity of Jesus would be the most spectacular sign in the history of the human race. The call of Jesus is revolution. If we implemented it, we would change the world in a few months. That's heavy, but it's true. And Brant says, we can do this. We can do this. We can learn to follow Jesus. We can learn to love our enemies. We can learn to forgive others and live without anger. We can learn to trust God in all things every day. Not only are those things doable, they're things that will make our lives better and make us better at life. There are things that will make our lives more joyful. But sadly, as Brant points out, much of church culture has taught us that the Christian life is about assenting to a list of truths so that we're saved. And then we make it all about studying stuff, studying things, accumulating information, having some God-themed experiences. That's not what Jesus told us. That's not what Jesus wants of us. Jesus wants us to follow him. That's way more interesting, way more dangerous, way more unpredictable, and a lot more fun as well. Spiritual growth is not about sucking it up and forcing yourself to do the same thing or to stop doing the other thing every day, day after day, forever. Spiritual growth it's about getting involved in an adventure. It's about submitting our lives to God and then allowing God to change us from the inside out, not leaving us the same person that we were, the same negative, unhappy, grouchy, upset, bitter. Think of the words. That's not the way God wants us. Jesus wants to change us from the inside out because when that happens, it becomes second nature to us. Brandt gives this example. He said... Let's say we take 10 minutes in the morning and we give thanks to God for all our blessings. Every morning, we get up in the morning, we give thanks to God for all our blessings, all the blessings in our lives. Okay, so let's say right after we finish giving our thanks for our blessings, we walk into Starbucks and we pick up our Ice Venti Americano with three extra shots of espresso because we're tired, we didn't get enough sleep. But the barista is moving so slowly that day And I told him, my name is Russell, and he calls out Rufus. (laughs) Do you think that if we spent the time just before we walked in giving thanks to God for our blessings, do you think we might be a little more patient, a little more forgiving of the guy who I'm sure had a rough night too? I think we would. It's like when we practice anything. If we practice enough, when things around us get heated, we'll we'll know what to do. We'll be able to keep our, our cool head. We'll be able to live more like Jesus. Brand ends the chapter with the story of the time that a kid from his church rear-ended his car at a red light. You ever had that happen to you? You had a red light and someone crams into you or you're, you're, at the, you're in a parking lot and someone backs into your car? Well, when Brand felt he'd been hit, he jumped out of his car. I have a tendency to jump out of the car like that. My wife tells me I need to stop it because I'm going to get shot, but that's okay. I'm working on it. I am a work in progress. He jumped out of the car to confront the other driver, but when he saw the other driver, it was a kid he knew from church. So instead of yelling, Brent walked over to the kid and they hugged it out. And everybody watching with their phones switched from pick to vid was amazed. That's what it looks like to live more like Jesus. Chapter 14, the earth is crammed with heaven. The joy of being relaxed, dedicated, and aware. In this chapter, Brent digs deeper into the topic of worry. And even though I haven't spoken with everybody here about it, I'm going to go out on a limb here and make a prediction. And I'm going to guess that you all worry. How'd I do? Yeah, pretty well, right? We all worry. It's what we do. It's part of the human condition. And to be fair, it makes sense. There's a lot to worry about in our world. And as Brant said, some people even worry about the fact that there aren't enough people worrying. They think that if people don't worry, they just don't care. But worrying and caring are not the same thing. You can actually care without worrying. It is possible to be relaxed and to be caring. Think about Jesus. Jesus cares for us more than we can ever know, but he isn't worried about anything ever. Watch what took place at the Last Supper. This is Luke 22. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And then Luke wrote, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. So what's happening here? Jesus is having supper with his disciples. It's the Passover dinner. He's instituting the Lord's supper, but he knows all the while that Judas who's sitting right there with him is going to betray him that night. And yet... Jesus is making dinner plans for the future. Oh, minus Judas, of course. He's not invited anymore. But Jesus always kept that big picture in mind. He knew what the end was. Now, relaxed doesn't mean you're not trying. And peaceful doesn't mean you're bland and boring. Actually, being more focused on the big picture can really help you to navigate through the challenges of today. When the big picture is clear and solid and beautiful... The pressure of the moment just fades away. It's like when you get ready to go on vacation. You can't wait to go on the vacation. You're excited about the vacation. And yes, it's stressful getting ready for it. You got to pack. Don't forget your Q-tips. Don't forget your toothpaste. All that stuff. It's stressful. But you know, you know what the future holds. The pressure's going to fade. When my sons were young, we talked a lot about how some of the other kids in school might not have been treating them well. And a lot of times, I tried to get them to focus not on whatever challenges they had faced on any particular day, but I tried to get them focused, rather, on what their future was, the future that was ahead of them. And I told them to focus on the fact that whoever was giving them a hard time would, before they knew it, be out of their lives and have absolutely no power over them. So I said, keep your eyes ahead and prepare yourselves for your grown-up lives in which you can Choose freely who you want to be around. You don't have to be around people just because. You can be around the people you want. And you don't have to be concerned about anyone who wasn't interested in treating you well. So I said, just keep on doing what you're doing, and you'll get to the next level. And trust that God will do for you what he's going to do for you. And that change of focus and that change of mindset made the day's problems fade into the background. Brand suggested that maybe we're all a little bit like the little boy in the crowd of thousands who came to see Jesus. You remember him, he brought lunch for himself. I'm sure he had his little Roy Rogers lunchbox with some smoked fish in there, a loaf of bread. He didn't concern himself about anybody or anything else. But Jesus took that and fed a crowd of thousands with it and there were leftovers. There's no way that boy would have ever thought that to be possible. He just brought what he brought. And then he watched what God did with it. Then there was the time that Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And right before he raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus told some people, I don't know if you ever noticed this, Jesus told somebody else, take away the stone. Why did Jesus need somebody to take away the stone? I thought he's God. He could do it himself, right? Of course he could. But he told other people to do it, which illustrates something about Jesus. Jesus allows us, doesn't need us, allows us to do whatever we can do, And then he steps in and does that which only he can do. And about this, Brant writes, we get to be part of something the world has never seen before, part of something wonderful, but we can relax about the outcomes. The outcomes aren't on us. We don't have to do what we can't do. And the things that God has called us to do, that we can, we do. We shouldn't worry about anything at all. Brandt talked a bit about his work here in international hospitals. One of the jobs that he's been assigned to cure is he has to entertain the children that are being treated by the doctors. He loves that aspect of his job. It's very apparent if you talk to him. It's apparent in the book. Jesus' love of children was quite apparent too. As we saw before, Jesus told us that in order to avail ourselves of the blessing of the kingdom of heaven, we need to have faith like a child. You know, there's no other religious system in the world that teaches the importance of children. And if the Lord of all creation, who has the world on his shoulders, has the time to relax and play with the kids, we should approach life in the same way. The English poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote this, "'Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush a fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes.'" The rest sit around it and pluck blackberries. Only he who sees. That means not everybody sees it. And you can't see much when you're walking around worried about every little thing. But if today is not our focus, and we're not futilely trying to control everything in our world, then guess what? We'll be freed up to notice everything, to notice that the world indeed is crammed with heaven, that every common bush a fire with a God who is not worried at all all. Here's our last chapter, chapter 15, monster to miracle. We have reasons to trust in God's character. Brandt begins this chapter with a realization. It's a realization I discovered a long time ago. I love it. You can really live a more peaceful and relaxed life if you learn to be quick with this phrase. Want to see the magic phrase? It'll make your life a lot happier. Ready? Ready? I don't know. Oh, it's powerful. This is a game changer for me. It really was for years. For years, I labored under the false notion that I had to know everything. I believed wholeheartedly in the statement that Jerry Seinfeld once made. I'm going to quote the great prophet Jerry Seinfeld. A lawyer is basically the person that knows the rules of the country. We're all throwing the dice, playing the game, moving our pieces around the board. But if there's a problem, the lawyer is the only person that's read the inside of the top of the box. That's what I thought. I had to answer everybody's questions. And then I became a pastor and the questions became more important. Why does God allow bad things? Why does God do certain things certain ways and not those things other ways? Why does God have a problem with this behavior or that behavior? I felt like I had to have all the answers because people's eternal souls depended on it. But then I discovered the incredible life-changing power of admitting that sometimes, I don't know, And like Brant, I found that realization incredibly freeing. See, being at peace doesn't equate to knowing and understanding everything. That's a really good thing. Because notwithstanding what we might have thought, we cannot do it anyway. And when we realize that we simply don't have all the answers about how everything in the world works, we're freed up to trust in the character of God. And as Brant said, this is what faith is. Having confidence in God's character and capability, knowing that one day your loyalty to God will be vindicated. And as Brand's friend noticed, noted, as Christians, we can deliberately choose to continue to be confident in God's character and capability in spite of unjust circumstances and painful challenges that provoke us to question and doubt. Now, I'll tell you in every difficult or tragic situation in my life, or in the lives of the people close to me, God has shown me that he is always there, and he continues to let beauty shine through. Now, to illustrate this point, Brand tells the story of his friend, Ben. Ben is a neurosurgeon, a brain surgeon, who wanted to serve as a missionary doctor and serve the poor somewhere in the world, but he had a problem. You see, he applied to all these Christian missionary organizations, but they wouldn't send him. Why not? Here's why. Ben has six children. But one of his children, Sarah, was born with a condition called elephantasis. Her condition caused her appearance to be greatly disfigured. And the Christian organizations told Ben, I'm sorry, we can't send you because your daughter's appearance will make the local people believe that your family is cursed and they won't wanna come close to you. You won't be able to help them. But then Ben meant the people at Cure. And through Cure, Ben and his family headed off to Uganda to start a hospital. And while the people in Uganda Who saw Sarah did indeed believe that she was cursed, they also saw something that they couldn't believe. They saw that not only did a respected American doctor and his wife also have a child with a disability, they saw that they loved her. They saw that Ben and his family were not ashamed of their daughter Sarah. It was then that Cure Uganda began treating treating children with disabilities and they began treating kids who were also presumed to be cursed. They were the shame of their families, but the surgeon himself modeled God's love for them. And by doing this, the parents saw that they didn't need to feel shame any longer. They could bring their little ones to the hospital and experience a completely different kind of love. Ben and his family lasted in Uganda, stayed in Uganda for 12 years. During that time, he discovered a treatment for hydrocephalus, that's having they used to call water on the brain, that would save the lives of countless other children, both in Uganda and around the world. So think of it. Because of God's work through Sarah's disability, children who were once regarded as monsters have become miracles to their families and their communities. Jesus' ministry set the stage for this miracle. In John 9, as Jesus and his disciples were walking along, they noticed a man who had been born blind, and the disciples started asking questions that, was born, that were born out of the commonly held belief of their day. They said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, God must be punishing him because he was born blind. And Jesus' answer probably shocked all of them, shocked everyone who heard it. He said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. God turns monsters into miracles so that the world can see God at work through them. God turns curses around, and through that, he turned the world upside down. Like Brandt, Don't you want to be a part of that kind of blessing? Don't you want to be a part of that kind of power? Brandt finished up this chapter by quoting the third verse of the Christmas song, Joy to the World. You guys know that. Well, here's the third verse. You might not know this verse. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. This, guys, is how the kingdom of God works. It's not necessary for us to have all the answers. We only need to learn to trust the character of God. Amen? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for reminding us that even in the toughest times, even in the most troubling times, and even in the scariest times, you've promised to never leave or forsake us. And we can trust you to work everything out for your glory. Lord, we pray that you would continue to guide us as we discover the beauty of your kingdom here on earth. Please give us the strength to meet your calling in our lives as we serve your kingdom in everything we do. We love you, Lord.